Welcome to Nyakcast, everybody. We're joined today with Council Member Mitra Jalali, who has previously worked as a teacher, community organizer, policy aide, and congressional staffer. Now, as a member of the St. Paul City Council in Minnesota, her prior- priorities in office include everything from affordable housing to economic development to what is quite relevant to our conversation today, which is community first public safety and police accountability. Um, Mitra, thank you so much for joining us today as the country marks one month since the murder of George Floyd at the hands of a police officer in Minneapolis, and one month really since we've seen this unprecedented outpouring of grief and anger that has propelled the Black Lives Matter movement really to the forefront of this nation's consciousness. And, you know, we're seeing protests all across the country from Minnesota to Washington, D.C. to Los Angeles. And so, Mitra, I just wanted to thank you for taking time to share your reflections with us today and tell us a little bit more about yourself and, you know, how you have, you know, how you've seen as a politician, as a private citizen, and as an Iranian-American, how all of this has sort of sat with you. Well, thank you. Um, thank you so much. And hello to everyone who's listening. Salam alaikum. Hi, it's really nice to be here. Uh, I'm Mitra Jalali. I am really proud to now represent Ward 4 on the St. Paul City Council in my work and in my career. And I come to this conversation not just as a, a council member, which is just where my career path has, has taken me, but I really in, as, as my broader human self, as um, an Iranian-American, as a Korean-American. My parents are actually from uh, Tehran and Seoul, South Korea. They um, they followed their paths respectively to Minnesota, and they met in greater mm-hmm. Minnesota as exchange students from two different countries. They relocated to the University of Minnesota Twin Cities. Um, they had me in Minneapolis. I am their firstborn child, their only daughter. Maybe on another podcast, we could talk about what it's like to be the only daughter in an immigrant family. That's like its own <laughs> podcast. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, but I'm also um, I'm the I'm a product of them and, and our community story. And and I um, I am a classroom teacher of three years. I, I pivoted from there into community organizing. Um, I saw the power elections have to transform people's lives and. I actually serve now as a as a council member, and so um, I'm I'm here because I want to talk to our community about what this moment means and uh, how we're experiencing it, and what we should draw from it in terms of our responsibility to this conversation, how we're going to do the work within our own community. Uh, I am a Iranian American who is not black. There are Iranian Americans who are black. Uh, a, a very heavy majority of our community is not black. And how do we find an entry point into this conversation and take up our responsibility and our duty? And um, and what I believe is actually our power to, to join within this movement and to serve it in the way that is unique to us and the role we have to play. Because everyone, no matter your background, there's a role you can play. In, in turning the tide of what we're just all too familiar with and the anguish, the I just keep having the phrase American anguish in my mind. That's like the phrase that keeps coming up because um, because this is happening over and over and over again. And um, so, I, so I'm here to talk to you all today with, I think, a lot of hurt and a lot of exhaustion from being in it in a pretty direct way, but also um, hope and determination and just like, a belief that we can because we must. So um, I'm excited to talk more and thankful for you to convene this space because I think it's really important. And I think, Mitra, you brought up such an important point for us to make from the outset, which is, you know, we're not, we're in no way trying to represent Black voices on this topic because we are in fact not Black Americans. But more so, we're trying to be responsible where we need to be responsible for our community and confronting um, anti-blackness, racism, all the things that do exist in our community. And of course, it's not unique to our community, but we, you know, when it comes to how we talk to our parents, our extended family, our friends, and making sure that this moment isn't just a moment about protest and about, uh, you know, what the country is going through, but it really requires a reflection within the culture of the country and our own culture to be able to sort of deal with this issue. And so really we're coming from a perspective of this is our responsibility. We are responsible for reflecting on these things and talking about them and talking them through. Mm-hmm. And, and sorry, I mean, I think someone's <laughs> setting off a smoke alarm in my kitchen. So. No, it's fine. Um, I had a giant ambulance outside. <laughs> so we're all good. Um, but I, um, hold on. 
I just don't want it to be innocent. So um, you're good. I, yeah, I think, and, and I would like to just, I'll share um, my intention. And I think my intention is to speak to fellow non-Black Iranian Americans and to really like wrestle publicly and uh, in, a, in a conversation um, amongst ourselves about like, what is this moment? Um... <laughs> Do you guys need the fan? <laughs> Do you want to just take the fan? This is quarantine life, everybody. Totally is. My, this is quarantine podcast. <laughs> my, my wonderful boyfriend and his kid are here, and they're making a pizza. So I want to make sure they have what they need. <laughs> okay, I'm going to just try again. Um, but my intention, <laughs> uh, my intention is that as as a non-black person in America, a non-black person of color, and an Iranian American, like how how do we have the conversations we need to have and and I, I will say, like, I had to come into my understanding, like, with so many friendships and experiences and to process with non-Black people of color like myself and to, like, do homework and to study and then to be in relationship with Black people and to to be able to just, like, do the human work of undoing anti-Blackness in ourselves, and then also understand, like, where are we structurally in this discussion? And, like, where do our people show up? Where are we positioned? And what does that mean about what we have to do? So um, I have a lot of thoughts on that. and and that, But I think that is what we need to be processing, and, and that um, too many people in our community are still late to this conversation. They're still late to doing this work. Um, for some folks in our community, this, this moment in our history is like the beginning of the work for them. And I think that we have to uh, lean into that and bring folks in and invite them to the work and also uh, have the urgency, have the, have the ferocity and the determination that's needed. So, um, so yeah, I'd love to hear, um, you know, yeah, all this is, you know, it's fascinating. I think you just did so much of the work that needs to be done in asking the right questions. I think it's so hard in navigating all of this to even know what to ask, right? And so now all I'm thinking of and saying everything that you said is the one question that comes to mind is how does the Iranian American community show up now? Mm -hmm. What do we do? What is our responsibility both externally to a community that is really suffering, you know, as, as in this nation that we all share? And then what is our responsibility internally within our community? What are we supposed to be challenging? I think it, think it is hard to reflect. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's hard to know the right questions to ask. And I think a lot of people are also operating in the, well, I don't want to make a mistake. So a lot of people then just back off completely not wanting to touch it. Mm -hmm. um, and so I guess that's my question is how do we show up? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I've been thinking about that a lot. Um, I think about the generational work, the intergenerational work. I think about what are uncles and our fathers and mothers and our aunties and grandparents experience has been compared to what our experience has been or what I'll say mine experience has been so and probably a lot of people listening to this podcast um I think that I'll talk a little bit I feel like I could get all over the place but I've been thinking a lot about like the there's there's kind of multiple forces so one of them is just I'll start with like confronting a history of anti-blackness and like um, in the Middle East, the very under-discussed uh, community story and history and reality of like exploitation of black people through the slave trade, um, through colonization, through um, how the economies of our world around the globe are built on the labor and, and the efforts and the cultural and intellectual knowledge of black cultures and black people. And um, you see that show up in our celebration sometimes, like growing up, I came to realize there are like Noru celebrations in Tehran that like have blackface. And there are um, friends of mine who are from parts of Iran where like, being openly racist against black people is like literally just part of the culture. And the, it's like this vocabulary that goes with that. And there's all these things. And so it's like, our parents are like coming a lot of the time with a lot that like, if you are born here, you, it takes like a lot of your life to even start to realize that stuff, I guess is how I'll put it. Like from my experience, like over time, 
I would come to see how when you go to the family Maimouni, there are like jokes made about darker skinned people, or there's like words in Farsi you haven't heard before. And you're like, what, what does that mean? doesn't sound good. Like you're a kid and you're hearing those words and you're just like, I, I know the household Farsi words, right? Like I know like, like I know all the like, you know, homework it's book on like computer. Like I know like the household Farsi and I don't know the political newscast Farsi as much. And I, I even like found this thing on Instagram that I saved that says um, vocabulary in Farsi for confronting anti-blackness. And I sent it around and I've been like keeping it and learning it because it's like, in, in in English, you take a while to learn the vocabulary of like, what is privilege? What is intersectionality? Um, in English, you take a while, or at least I'll say I took a while to learn the words that are actually like the products of black scholarship and of black women, right? Like Kimberly Crenshaw and like all of her work as a professor on like what intersectionality actually is and how she meant it as like an economic and social um, framework. And like, I it's I took like 20 years of my life to learn those words and then how do you find out what those words are and how to say them and like how to translate with our elders and so I've been thinking about that a lot um I think that our elders experience and our predecessors experience in the economy is different than a lot of ours and then there's a lot that that illuminates um I I I think about like I've been thinking a lot about like where do our parents have small businesses? And like, are the small businesses that our families have built in this country, um, are they hiring black people? Are they, uh, are they welcoming black customers? Are they equitable in how we show up in the community? Um, in Minnesota where I live, there's lots of Iranian small businesses. And um, you know, how do those businesses give back to the broader community? Um, how do they show our values in like wage fairness? There's so many layers, right? And um, and so I'll stop because I feel like that's a lot to react to, but like I could keep going just because I think when we start to really unspool, like what's our community story across generations, you start to find all the places and the sites where you can then figure out how to have the conversation from a place of like what we've experienced. So Asa, I know you're going to have a lot to say about this, but I wanted to, you had sent, Mitra, you had sent around this actual, this, it's like an Instagram deck full of, uh, how, you know, sort of the language to talk about this, but in Persian, um, how to talk about anti-blackness and how to talk about Black Lives Matters and intersectionality. And so I think that's, that's, we're going to, we'll make sure to put a link to that deck in the podcast description for everybody that's interested. But I think that's a really great place to start. Um, how do we talk about it? Because I don't think that we even have, the fact that we have to create this vocabulary in Farsi to be able to, com to converse about this, I think says a lot. And a lot of the comments that we've received since um, from just our community members, they want resources and explainers so that they can go back to their parents and talk about it. Folks are saying, you know, what can I show them? Do you have high-level talking points that can explain what intersectionality means? Like, this is stuff that's new to our parents and new to our generation. And so I can, I can tell you at the, at least or new to our parents' generation. And so I can tell you at least when it comes to like millennials who, you know, we've sort of grown up in the world of intersectionality. And I think we've, in a lot of ways we've molded and the zoomers, you know, they're doing their part now, but I'm going to say millennials can take a lot of credit. Um, but so how do, how do we talk to our elders? How do I explain to my father why, what the importance of this moment is, or how do I explain to my father who may own a business, what, you know, how he can show up? Mm -hmm. Cause I think that in a lot of ways, yeah, I mean, that, that's really, that's really my question is how, how can we talk to, how can we bypass that generational divide and have this conversation with the vocabulary needed beyond like, here's a slide deck. Mm -hmm. I think it's like, <clears throat> we have relationships with our, so like, we have relationships with our elders and with our relatives. And I'll, I guess I'll talk about like my relationship with my dad, because um, this is like something that I've been working on and talking about with him for years. Like it was 2015 when the Minneapolis police department killed Jamar Clark. And that was when uh, Minneapolis and the broader twin cities community were in the national news and that we like went to the mall of America and we shut down the mall of America. And I was one of the people that joined alongside like, 
all of these folks, like everyday people, organizers, activists, and we were all at the Mall of America. And like, I'll contextualize that by saying the Mall of America is like this Minnesota place that's like, it used to be themed like Camp Snoopy. And it's like a freaking mall, right? It's like a bastion of capitalism. And it's like this giant, like, institution that like represents like, um, like exploitation and like in- inequality in a lot of ways. And it's also got that creepy veneer of like, everything's great at the mall of America. <laughs> and so like, it was a great site of confrontation and like black lives matter organizers like chose it as a site of confrontation because they wanted to like shatter, shatter the Minnesota nice. And so we went to the mall of America and we shut down the mall of America. And then my dad I remember called me and he was just like, you guys shut down the mall of America, black lives matter. And he was like seeing it and he was processing it. And it was like, he was proud of me for being there and glad. And then at the same time, I remember within that same time frame, fast forward. And we were like having a conversation around the kitchen table. And he was like, the thing about, and I'm sorry for if folks are listening to to this who are black, but I'm going to share something my dad said that was like negative about black people because I want to process it. But he said, um, like something I, I I believe it was something like the problem with a lot of like black people is that they don't have enough education and then everything starts with the family. And it was just a lot of like sort of right wing stuff that you hear. And my dad like votes Democrat and like saw his daughter at the mall and was like, that's good. And has not at that point had not connected like what is structural racism in America against black people? That's like not his educational history. That's not like something people have held space to talk with him about. Um, That's just like not where he comes from in terms of like his home base of knowledge. Whereas like us who are the American generation grow up over time and slowly have this awakening or a lot of us do hopefully faster and sooner and more. Right. But like where we're just like, Oh, everything that we learned in school like obscures black history. And like we are the, we over our lives learn about chattel slavery and like all of these things that are part of America. And a lot of our parents see America as a place where like they escaped what was happening to them under the regime in Iran. And they like came here and they kind of, it's like they they don't want to think about stuff anymore. And so they're not here to learn a whole other country's issues. So he didn't like have, it was like weird because he was there like on paper or like he, I didn't ar- have to argue with my dad about being at the mall of America and why were you doing all that? But in a, in the calm and stillness of our kitchen table space was like, Bubba, I need to talk to you about why what you said actually like isn't true. And here's what's really gone on in like our country's disinvestment in black people because of like a lifelong national hatred of black people and how it has like held, it has held us back all of us and it is happening today. And like, and so it's like, we find these like opportunities with our parents where they say stuff like that and they might see themselves as aligned with the movement, but they actually have not had someone sit and make them confront and talk. And so we talked through it and like, there's a lot of like um, model minority respectability, self-determination politics that our, our elders sometimes do embrace. And that lends itself to believing um, the, the other side of that coin, which is like, good minorities, bad minorities, like hardworking Asian people and lazy black and brown people. Those are like ugly things that are believed. They're just ugly things that are believed. Um, I mean, a whole other half of my life brain space is like being East Asian and like, then there's like all that too. So it's just, I don't know. I feel like I've like over the years, just like deconstructed so much of this for myself because I was finding myself over and over again in these spaces and then finding my family being um, disconnected and seeing it happen, but only processing in a very superficial way, in a superficial way where it's like, okay, you're seeing the movement and the protests and maybe you're not necessarily having a reaction to that, but you have a lot of work to do. And we have the ability to like, when we're, when we're at that kitchen table or when we're driving or whatever that version is, right? And everyone has a different story. Our parents are, it feels hard to talk about even um, 
confronting and doing this work with our parents because I'll say my experience in the Iranian culture is there is a very high premium on like respect for your elders. Um, there is a experience we've had where like, because we are like kids with Muslim names and brown skin and different hair and all these things, we do experience white supremacy in America. Like I'm, I'm the nine 11 generation. And like, I was radicalized under George W Bush. And like, I, I needed my family as a refuge from like the rest of white supremacy. And so it hurts to go to the people who are like your safe space and who you needed to like be your affirmation culturally and like who who help you feel proud of like your skin and your eye shape and all these things right and to be like you're doing bad too and it like feels like you're fighting against like what the culture teaches you which is like that's rude that's disrespectful your parents gave up everything for you to be here how dare you talk about them as racist this is inappropriate La 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 la. Like I hear all those things. I've had to battle and overcome those things as a young, was a much younger person. Um, and now my 34 year old self is like, we don't talk right now. <laughs> like I'm just like in a different place with it. But like, but like my, my younger self like had a hard time because I think I felt like, how do I shatter these like ideas and push you really hard and really far and not like feel like I'm betraying my community. And that statement is like in itself an indictment, right? Is like no community should ever be built on the oppression of black people. And so we're going to break that off right now. So that's a lot, but um, I guess that's my time. The buzzer is going to get them. <laughs> <laughs> it's all right. Well, give it a second. Give it a second. I'm, I'm going to get water. Keep going. Yeah, I'm going to get some water. So, I, sorry, I was going to say, I, th I think you brought up some really interesting points in terms of the importance of, of confronting, um, that generation. I always, you know, I, I feel like, especially in recent weeks, probably, um, a lot more people are having these conversations. And something that I always find fascinating. And I try to point out when I have these conversations, especially within the Iranian diaspora is like, look, if we're in the Iranian diaspora, more than likely, not always, but more than likely we take issue with the authoritarianism of the Iranian government. And we espouse ideas like, you know, democracy and freedom and equality. We take issue with how minorities are treated in Iran. So this is this is the thinking of the of the diaspora. And of course, I hear this from like my parents and my parents' generation all the time. Just bad, 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 bad. This is why they're bad. I'm like, okay, I agree with you, but you have to also agree with me when it's bad here. And that's the that's where I think sometimes there's a disconnect. Where I wonder, well, but if you believe in these things, you can't just believe in them for Iranians. That 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 really defies the entire notion of freedom of, and equality when you have this idea of exceptionalism. And I think part mm -hmm. of what we have to confront is our own exceptionalism, which is tied into these sort of nationalist ideas and roots. But what's interesting about it, and this might not be the most popular opinion because I'm not, let me be very clear, I'm not excusing their behavior. But I think what's often missing in the conversation for our generation when we're talking to them is we're just mad at them. It's like, why aren't you seeing this? Why are you such a mm -hmm. hypocrite? But at the same time, it's because of their own traumas, right? Mm -hmm. And like, we have to, if we want to have real dialogue and if we want to have real conversations, we have to acknowledge their trauma because really they're overcompensating for an internalized inferiority, right? That history that's informing the way that they think of themselves as exceptional, or if there's this idea of exceptionalism in minority communities, it's often because, I mean, you bring up White supremacy, obviously, we haven't felt it the way that Black Americans have felt it. I'm not making any kind of comparison. But we have felt in our, you know, native countries and in this in this history what it is like when you're when you're colonized, when your countries are destroyed, when people are refugees, when they have to leave. We do know what it feels like to have the imposition of a culture that says we are superior to you. And I think that has been internalized in that in that generation to almost overcompensate and have to feel like, but we're exceptional compared to all of these other brown people, at least give us that. Right. Mm. And so you see that in Iranian nationalism, when they hearken back to ancient empires, like that's how far back you have mm. to go to be able to be proud of who you are first. Wow. And I think a lot of that, um, that sort of, you know, what we have to confront is that trauma and sit down and say, look, I understand that this is actually coming from a really bad place for you, but you have to be able to 
accept that that's what it is, work through that trauma for yourself, you're, mm-hmm. you're not inferior. We didn't have to try to emulate another culture. We, we are not inferior. Black people are not inferior. No one is inferior. And that is the sort of level to which I think we have to try and have these conversations if we want to broach the topic is like acknowledging that you think you're exceptional because you're insecure. That's really mm. where this exceptionalism, I think, comes from. I find that just really profound. And I'm and I am so thankful that you said all that and bring that up because it's just it's really deep and it's really palpable. And like I am thinking what you said made me think of like a few things. One of them is that I remember this weird like meme that came out when the Muslim ban happened in early 2017, where um a lot of Iranian Americans were suddenly speaking on that for the first time I've seen, like I saw like Amuz and Khalis talking about politics for the first time in my entire life because we got like freaking banned from America by Donald Trump. And it's like the meme and the sort of commentary from some of them was you shouldn't ban us because we are rocket scientists and we are engineers and we are medical professionals. And like, it was like, we need to stand on our exceptionalism to have a place in this country. And I was like witnessing that while also I I live in the community uh, in the state in America with um, I believe the biggest, the biggest Somali diaspora community in America and Iranian Americans in my state were talking about the Muslim ban and not talking about Somalia being included in the Muslim ban and not talking about like how there are black people, black immigrants affected by Trump's Islamophobia. And it was like, here's a clear moment in which like the forces of fascism and white supremacy are telling you that like, it doesn't matter if you are good enough by our definitions or yours, you are all the same to us and we are expelling you. And we are like clearly making it very clear. And it was just, I was like a very clear moment is happening. And like my community or people in my community, some are taking this opportunity to like handle this a certain way. And then others are not. And like, I do appreciate and remember Nyack being very vocal about uh, all of the countries in the ban and like why it was heinous and like speaking for using our platform as a way to use our voice and then also like be clear about who it's happening to in the full scope of it. But like that deep, like we must be good enough to be here. We must be good enough to be safe. Like all of that is like white supremacy does teach you and like have a moving goalpost all the time that like you need to make sure you have value. You had better have value. Like white people are inherently valuable and you are not, and you have to prove you're valuable. And so I'm just really sitting with that. And then the other piece about trauma and and why I think it makes it hard to talk to our elders. And I was talking a little bit about like some of our elders appearing to fall back asleep or appearing to like step away from politics is that like, we do have in our community and in our ancestry freedom fighters that know people who died in Tehran jail cells and know people who Mm. were shot by the police in freedom square in Tehran and like know people who were like stalked at their houses. And like one of my friends who's also Iranian and came to the protests with me, her mother is one of those activists and I continue to know her and her family today. And like, I can like, literally as I'm talking about them, imagining seeing them and like the hug and kiss we always have. And it's just like, these are like lifelong family friends. And my friend who's my age said that her mother was watching all this unfold. And like, one of the things that happened is that um, black activists in Minneapolis who organized the mall of America um, protest had cops come to like each of their homes, like police came to their homes and like tried to, talk to them and interact with them. And like, it's like, it was like incredibly, it was a very hostile act in the context of everything going on. It hopefully seems hostile in general, but I want to make clear, like, it was just like, it really, like, I remember that as a part of it. And I remember Mahiar saying like that her mom who was following all this very closely and is a Iranian woman now in America, like, you know, years out from the struggle that she's been through was like, it reminds me of when we were fighting in Iran and they like sent people in the night to my activist homes and they were like attacking and killing and like threatening and and bullying people. And it's like in, in, in the trauma and in the like depth of stuff we have to kind of like draw out, we also have, and this is why I'm like, I believe in our power because we have a community story that 
has a history and a tradition of fighting against fascism and fighting for democracy and fighting for human rights. And like, there are people in our community who watch what's happening in the black liberation movement and they can see the parallels and they, they, they see the connections and they're like, I have lived this. That to me is incredibly powerful and we must knit together all these stories and experiences and, and find meaning and, and do our work. So um, it's, it's, it's all of it. I'm just really sitting with what you said. It's, it's just all of it. Well, and that connection um, uh, between when you, it's unfortunate because I've unfortunately seen this commentary um, as well from some of these more like political dissident groups uh, that are in the Iranian diaspora who are like so bent on their focus on what happens in Iran um, mm. that they don't care about what happens in the U.S., right? And mm -hmm. that's the thing that's so frustrating. I think sometimes, you know, I was born in the United States this is very much my country and I care about what happens in it. And sometimes it's frustrating because, and, and this isn't representative of the, the entire diaspora. In fact, I would argue it's a, it's a fringe minority within the diaspora, but still to hear those voices sort of legitimating what is happening under this administration, because mm. they're conflating their own political agenda in Iran with what's happening here is so frustrating because it's like, well, you can't undermine democracy here. You can't engage with protests, uh, the repression of protests, and be okay with that, but then be so outspoken when it happens in Iran. And sometimes I, I find this parallel interesting. I'm like, wait, so now some people say things like, oh, but they're, you know, you have to understand they're looting or they're doing this and they're doing that. And so it's being, these are riots, these aren't protests. And I remember there were protests in January in Iran, there were protests in November in Iran, and they were doing the same thing. That didn't give the government the right to repress those protests. They didn't have the right to do that. Those protesters were angry, not because of one thing that had happened, but decades, years, centuries of repression, of not being politically free. And that's where it spilled out. And they understood it in that moment. In that moment, it was like, yeah, well, that makes sense because, well, they've been repressed for such a long time. I'm like, what do you think is happening what do you think Americans is happening here? Yes. We've been repressed but, for 400 years in this country. Mm -hmm. And you're not understanding that and you're not giving it the same validity. And that double standard is, again, mm -hmm. something that just, I mean, it drives me crazy, but it's something that we can't allow. We can't just, you know, like oftentimes we dismiss it. It's like, well, you know, we're from different political uh, sort of viewpoints and so, but it's like, no, we need to confront this. This needs to be engaged because mm -hmm. this is not okay. And FYI, this is the country that you're living in. So you mm -hmm. can't claim to espouse democracy somewhere else and then not care about it where we are. Like that, mm -hmm. it's, it's, uh, it's sort of a, like a hypocrisy that I just can't wrap my mind around when it comes to mm -hmm. it. I think that's so, um, that's, that is a very good breakdown of the disconnect I have seen amongst my relatives and uncles and friends and sort of the generation, um, I'm like, you know, the generation that raised me, right? The generation that raised a lot of us. Um, there is definitely like a fringe group within the Iranian American community that like thinks that it's like the analysis in the worldview is just about like what happens at the uppermost echelons of both of our governments and like does not actually engage with the the societal conditions of of our community who are here and like doesn't think about like mobilization and and you and seeing us as a block and. I um I am I am reminded a little of like just on that topic of us as a block and connecting you know sort of the muslim ban activism that activated a lot of our family but I really was reflecting earlier on um you know I'm curious about the analysis that we have on how the Iranian American community voted in 2016 and like what are our relative rates of voter registration and like how much did we show up and I anecdotally perceive that most of my relatives and Iranian community members that I know do not necessarily vote um, for Donald Trump or loyal Republican voters but like we certainly have those and and it's like the political trauma and the sort of disengagement then has reverberations that impact like our community more broadly. And 
So we have a president now who has declared open season on us and has rolled back the most important policy achievement of like the American government with respect to our country's relationships. All these things are happening. And we have, you know, a, a body of, of Iranian Americans that have the power to vote and like actually participate. And more importantly, in that election, we saw so much data I hate to take us all back to like those days in 2016 following that election where like that night everybody's world stopped and we didn't know how we would survive. Right. Like those I'm like taking us back to that time period. But like I remember very clearly that there were like articles upon articles being like, here's who voted for what. And we saw overwhelmingly that black voters held the line on not electing Donald Trump. Black voters, black women voters showed up overwhelmingly for Hillary Clinton and for a political party that does not uh, respect or take um, seriously the voting block of black American voters who have overcome voter suppression in their own country and overcome like decades of discrimination at the ballot box. And so here we are in this like moment where connecting how we show up in the electorate to like what we're getting <laughs> is something we also need to figure out. Like there's the interpersonal and there's the psychology and like, how does it, and then there's like the very clear, hopefully extremely obvious point now that like disengagement is no longer an option. Disengagement from just like regular times wasn't an option. And now we are in a moment of breakthrough. Actually we are as a society, people have had it. People are just like fed up. Um, we're, in, in, in the local community here, um, calling what happened here our uprising because black people in our community were, were wounded on, by, a, by a murder and a state sanctioned killing yet another one on top of a pandemic disproportionately impacting them. And like, it's sanitizing in a way to say like there's civil unrest. <laughs> it's like every single person in this country needs to learn how to contend with the rightful fury of many black people here. That is just like what is happening. It scares the hell out of people. It is not something most people are prepared for. Um, it is something that we need to hold and honor and see for what it is as a logical, emotional and rightful reaction to 400 years of violence or more. And so how do we help our people see that? I mean, you are right that like the double standards show up. I mean, I remember my relatives talking about like, it was, it, first of all, I'll say it was, it was hard to like, I don't want to compress a ton of very important stuff, but it's like, part of me is speaking to you after like living through four weeks of stuff happening where like buildings in the ward I represent burned down, you know, um, I physically like stood where all the um, breaking into stores and looting and things were happening and was like talking to people on the scene and trying to like deescalate our police department and understand what their strategy was so that they didn't make it worse. And then like getting calls from my constituents. We stayed up till 4am multiple nights in a row in St. Paul because in every night of successive things that happened, they're, came this growing creepy secondary wave of like people from the suburbs and some from Texas, some from Wisconsin, like white men with plateless trucks, plateless minivans, some with baseball bats, some with masks, some with white power stickers, some with no identifiers, just like absolute creeps who would drive around. And so like we held community watches across the twin cities for like a week. Wow. It feels like more, but I would literally text with my constituents at two in the morning because they were like weird van at the end of the block. And then we were helping them document and like send in sightings. Uh, and then we were helping people like direct stuff to non-police resources because there were people here who were like, I don't want the cops to come to this situation. They will make it worse. <laughs> it's kind of like why all this is happening, you yeah. know? And so I guess I'm trying to paint a picture of like, that is like what it was like for me and then I go to my family gathering and they're like, I can't believe I saw people taking TVs. I saw people taking shoes. One person took like a whole thing of, you know, um, the double standard. 
not understanding. So, Go ahead, Mana. I'm sorry. No, no, you're absolutely right. And, you know, as you're, we're talking about the double standard, I keep thinking about the things that our community really needs to contend with. We keep using the word contend and confront. And I think another, another thing, and I just, it's so hard sometimes to look at your, to t- really, because you are, we're a part of the community, right? So every time we say something critical, it is a little bit of a reflection on ourselves too. But I think we have to stop asking, what's in it for me? Mm-hmm. You know, the question can't be, why should I show up? No, the question is, how do you show mm-hmm. up? Not why, mm-hmm. right? We talk about, at NIAC, we talk about building political power. We don't talk about building political power solely to advance the interests of a small niche of the American mm-hmm. society. Mm-hmm. Nisha, you are the gold standard for what I think Iranian American political power looks like, which is that you are proudly Iranian, you're proudly American, you ha- you're proudly East Asian, and yet you, you know, when I look at your long list of accomplishments and the priorities that you've undertaken on, it's not just Muslim ban or securing a nuclear deal. It's affordable housing. It's racial equality. It's, you know, police accountability. True political power, true political engagement, that's what that looks like. Mm-hmm. And I really hope that our community can get to a point where we don't show up because it just directly impacts us. We don't show up just for a community because eventually we may need that community to show up for us as well. We show up because that's what a good American does. And so, Mitra, I just really, you are the gold standard. And so, I hope you know what a, you know, you are, you've set the bar high for what real positive, constructive engagement in the political system looks like beyond just the, the, the priorities that are niche to certain parts of your identity. So I, that wasn't a question. I just well, really need to sing your say, praises on that. I would say, you know, that. that means a lot to me, and um, I'm humbled. And I, I think your point about like moving our people from what's in it for me to how we're all getting free is is exactly it. And I will always see myself as accountable to the movement and to my constituents and to just like everyone who raised me and I just like think of it in those terms right because everyone who raised me is like a big phrase it's like not only is it our aunts and uncles but it's like your elders in the movement who you learn from it's your peer mentors that you follow and that you see and like I think about just like the the many many people who I've gotten to be in relationship with who have sharpened me um we stand in the our community stands in the victories of black civil rights labor. Our community is in America because the civil rights movement fought for the immigration laws that enabled us to be here. And when we talk about how to confront our our family and our community members, one of the most powerful things I've said is to expose that history to them and for them to realize, oh, I'm only even here because black people fought and they included me when they didn't have to. And all of a sudden now, my whole life as I know it, that I've been able to build, that door was opened. And we don't see that solidarity. We don't talk enough about like that solidarity toward us and how like we don't reciprocate and don't see that reflected. Um, There's an invisibilizing sometimes of like Black political leadership and movements benefiting our community, but us not talking about that. An example that's like more, I don't, micro is like too small, but I'm, but it's like a smaller condensable example that I can think of. And it connects back to Minnesota and to my personal life and to like this topic. But the, the attorney general of Minnesota is now Keith Ellison. Um, Keith Ellison was elected to Congress in 2006. And then he later became the attorney general. Um, he is now the community pushed to take ownership of the case from Hennepin County attorney, Mike Freeman, because Hennepin County Attorney Mike Freeman has not delivered, that office has not delivered justice for Black people in our community in multiple cases like this one. Um, Keith is now leading the prosecution and bringing, working to bring justice to the family of George Floyd. And my connection to Keith actually goes back further in that Keith was the first uh, Muslim elected to Congress in American history, like in another political lifetime, you know, in like 14 or 15 or 16 or 17, 18 years ago. If you are like most of us, a 9-11 teenager and you like are a generation of diaspora kids who came into our power and awareness because of how the police and the imperial state like surveilled our families because you had a Muslim sounding name, 
if you found your vocabulary for racial profiling and discrimination, like in that time, all of a sudden, this person running in opposition to the Iraq war, like became a congressman. So I'm over here with my extremely mixed self in Minnesota, a state where Garrison Keillor is very known for being like, here we are in the prairie. Everyone is Swedish. And I'm like, not my Minnesotan family, right? <laughs> and then this man gets elected to Congress and I'm like, wow, I suddenly feel represented. And like, there has been for me a personal, like, a personal pattern where like black political leadership has represented my family very well and fought for all of us and fought for us specifically and like talks about imperialism and talks about like um, foreign policy and then is also fighting these wars at home. And like mm -hmm. we have a obligation if we're going to seek political power, if we're going to seek elected office, if we're going to seek policy leadership roles and like all these other things to go as hard, if not harder, right? For everything that we owe and for everything we have. And so this is a bit of like a long drawn out response to what you're saying to agree. But like in the, in the story of my life, I can look to like the arc of the leaders and like the sort of bodies of work that have informed how I think now and like black leadership and political uh, uh, movement carries so many communities, including ours. And like our work has to include and center on an acknowledgement of that and to find our ways that like we uniquely can do work in service of the broader cause. So, um, and I, and I'm, I'm humbled again by just like, I, I really, I, I think like I, a lot of my work doesn't feel necessarily like I'm here to work for the Iranian American community. Like I'm a city council member and I literally am working on, um, you know, land use and zoning. Um, but you know what else I work on as a city council member, the police, the St. Paul police department who had a presentation this morning with us, uh, one month after George Floyd was murdered in another city across the river by their counterpart department. And we're talking about defunding the police. We're talking about stopping conflating law enforcement with violence prevention. And we're making our city think differently about where we resource communities and like what results we get for that. And that is happening in the context of everything here. So as we seek power, as we find it, as we build it, everybody's free or no one's free. It's a lot to feel like sometimes it, it's so heavy and so hard. <laughs> and I'm like, can I even live up to that? Like, if I'm telling you, honestly, it, like it feels so hard sometimes, but at the same time, like what did our parents go through? Right. And like the people that we love, what did their families go through? I think it's empowering, oh. actually, when you're not going through it alone, right? I actually think the challenge is in thinking, and this is kind of why it's like the, the message to our community should be, why are you going about this alone? Like, why, mm -hmm. why don't you understand that in the collective, in solidarity, in being there for someone else, that's how people are there for you? And so that's actually, you know, and what's so funny is in our culture, this is understood, right? Like, uh, Iranians are sort of famous for their hospitality. They're like, you know, I invite you, you invite me. We, we understand this, like, um, generosity of the collective when it comes to our interactions with mm -hmm. ourselves. For some reason in the political realm, again, there's, there's some kind of disconnect. And, you know, I really liked the point that you brought up in the sense that um, we really owe, not just our community, but every community owes the, you know, this immigrant dream of you come to the United States and you have all of these freedoms in this life, we owe that to Black Americans. And um, Nicole Hannah-Jones, who won a Pulitzer this year uh, for her work on New York Times 1619 Project, in her writing, one of the things that she brings up is that really the, the experience, the 1619, of course, marks the first slave ship that uh, arrives in Virginia. And so that's why when she looks at at centering black history as part of American history, it starts from there, 1619. 
you mm. know, not 1776, but 1619 is when we can really start thinking about this history. And one of the things that she notes is that the entire struggle to realize the foundational ideals of the United States is through the black struggle. And so mm. every group, any group who has struggled, any minority or disenfranchised or marginalized group, whether it's LGBTQ, whether it's immigrants, whether it's religious minorities, all of them, that you know, path was created by the struggle of black Americans for emancipation, for freedom, for liberty. And so quite literally, we owe whatever we have to that struggle that has given so much that it's innumerable, right? You can't measure the, the life the amount of life that's been given to do that. And so I think that's, maybe it's just an understanding of that history. Maybe that's what we're missing. Mm. And I say that because I'm a historian and I love to <laughs> mention that. I love that. It's important to know history because this is why. Like we have to understand that we, it's not even that, you know, we should do it because it's good for us in that collective sense, but we should do it because we owe it. It's because it's right. ability to do it. Mm-hmm. Amen. I mean, amen to all that. And um, I'm thinking of like visiting. I, I I remember like there's certain things you just like go and experience and you really remember them. And like you're talking about history. And I was thinking about like getting to go to Washington, D.C. And um, I was able to get into the Museum of African-American History, the beautiful new one that was built in the last few years. And there's a entire section that's on um the experience of black people in the military and how that like coincided with the experience of black people in the civil rights movement and the anti-war movement. And, and then on that same floor or near there is like black athletes. And in that same floor, you see like people signing up to fight and like serve in military duty for a country that like historically has not acknowledged their rights. Then you see black people marching on behalf of Vietnamese people and connecting their struggles together and then you also see black athletes using their platforms and Muhammad Ali risking it all and all of these different things together and and how that's the model. I mean, that is the model. And so our community has work to do to know that history. We can teach that history. We can show how we've been fought for by folks that we haven't even acknowledged or seen or understood or known. and and we can rise up in our own way. And um, I, I guess like, I, I have a like a sort of tale of two Iranian businesses that I've been thinking about that I'd like to tell, and then maybe we can keep talking or we can close. But, um, but like, I've been thinking a lot about, so we started this podcast talking about like, where does our community show up and how do we show up? And um, in the wake of everything that's happened, there's been like, um, uh, rightful backlash now against like local businesses who have like been harmful. And um, one of them is Holy Land Deli, which is on Central Avenue in Minneapolis and is like, like a huge Middle Eastern deli and kind of like, um, I don't know, Twin Cities famous. I don't know how to describe it, but um, our, the Iranian American community certainly has like tons of connections there. Um, like my dad knows the owner. A lot of us here like know the, know the Holy land people, you know, it's like a family business and um, they're rightfully under fire right now because there's been all these things coming out about how um, the daughter was fired for uh, posting racial slurs against black people and against Jewish people. Mm -hmm. um, their products are getting pulled off the shelves in all these different uh, uh, distributing area stores because of how it's been handled. Black employees are coming forward um, to talk about like how they were paid at lower rates than um, non-black employees and like customers experience being followed around. And like, there's just all these like just devastating and terrible things, right. At, at this like um, business that is in many ways, like a stand in for kind of the middle Eastern community here. And in many proxies, like the Iranian American community. And like, I've been watching our people kind of go through that and how they're interacting with it and whether they are like being willing to talk about the difficult, uh, painful, like must confront, must condemn parts of it. Or if they're like, no, no, he's like a good person. And like, that was like 10 years ago that his kid said that. And like, Bleh. and it's just like, I'm watching us and like how we deal with that. And then being like, well, black people here have some things to say about what really went down at Holy Land, right? 
And then at the same time, there's like an auto shop at 37th and Chicago, which is a block from where um, the memorial to George Floyd now is. It's from, it's from the, um, it's, it's in the neighborhood of Minneapolis where all of these things have happened. Um, it's been there for 30 years and it's owned by my friend Keon, whose dad is like an auto guy. <laughs> um, but he's not just an auto guy. He is a torture survivor. He literally worked with the late Minnesota Senator Paul Wellstone to pass anti-torture legislation and resources for survivors of the regime. The trauma we talk about in our community is real in his family. And um, Kian's dad has owned a shop down there for 30 years. And Kian told me that he's been, and I got permission from him to like kind of share this, but it's because I was like, what, you know, what do my friends and our relatives and our businesses like make of this moment, right? What are we, what are we processing? And he was just like, Mitra, I've been talking with my dad so much because all these outside commentators are like the violence in Minneapolis, the violence in urban communities, like all these things. And there's just like this outside gaze on it. And he was like, you know, my dad as a business owner there did experience along with other folks there violence in the community. But as we talk about like how we stop all that, what he's been learning about what actually changed it over time was not the default reaction that our relatives often take, which is like become best friends with the cops and make sure the cops become the personal patrol for like our bodegas and communities of color that like take black customers money, but don't hire them and follow them around in the store. It was not having tons of cops down there. It was placemaking and working with black and indigenous people of color, business owners in the neighborhood to expand their presence, to have black muralists and artists actually paint art that would like identify and tell the community story and put visibility on the intersection and like create connection and, and investment. It was like actual non-police based community safety. And mm. so everyone's like been coming to the businesses around the area for hot takes. And some of it is in bad faith. Like your business was damaged. Do you think we should have tons of police all the time, making sure that never happens again? And it's like, this is happening because the police are damaging and hurting and killing black people. And our community can either participate in that or we can condemn that and say it's not right and do work to make it better and use our stories and our businesses and our places of employment and our privilege and our political capital to undo that at home, like in our spaces, but also join the work and the leadership of the movement for black lives. So I'm just... I'm thinking on those two examples. I'm thinking about our people. Um, it's meant a lot to me to get to, to unpack some of these things with you all because we just don't, we don't talk about this as much as we should. <laughs> I hope that yeah. this podcast, like I hope people listen to this and just like expand the conversation. I am literally like at me on Twitter <laughs> um, and, and maybe like more can come out of this and, and we, and we sort of, create more resources, like not just the Instagram post, but more, because right. I feel like I've learned something from this and, and, and all the work we have to do. Mitra, you're amazing. Thank you so much for taking the time to share your experience and your expertise and with such compassion and empathy. And, you know, something I, something I really love that you've, it's, it's come across is that these conversations aren't bad that just because we have to sit down with our elders doesn't mean it's bad, that the ability to have mm -hmm. these conversations is good, even if they're hard. And I think that these conversations aren't punitive, right? And if we want to continue to have these conversations, then we need to approach them with empathy and compassion to the traumas that SLU alluded to. And so just speaking with both of you, I hope you know, I've got such chills. I actually feel like I'm coming out of this with a little bit I, I don't know. I feel like I have to go after this and sit and sort through my own thoughts. And there might be a, you know, a part two of this when we've all processed yeah. and come back. And, you know, we see, you know, in a month, the landscape may look very, very different. But I think what's not different is the reality that these conversations need to continue to happen, that they should not happen in a punitive way, because punishment never changed anybody. Uh, and that we need to show up. And whether that's making sure you are registered to vote, for the candidates that are going to advocate for the most vulnerable people in this country, 
or whether it's running for city council, knowing that at a local level, big things can happen. And Mm -hmm. I think everything happening with the Black Lives Matter movement and some of the amazing leadership we've really seen around, uh, you know, the the coronavirus pandemic has shown the impact that local leaders like you, Mitra, can have. And so thank you again for coming on and uh, sharing your experience with us. And I hope to have you on again soon. Well, thank you. Thank you for convening this conversation. Uh, I'm proud of NIAC for being willing to make space like this. And it makes me feel more seen in the organization and represented because it's about building power, like you said. So I'm in it with you all. And um, I'm at Mitra June Jalali on Twitter. If people can find me there, I'll be your friend <laughs> online. Put, no, no, don't worry. We'll put a link to your Twitter in the podcast description as well, though you may regret it. <laughs> I don't. I'm good. Um, Full disclosure. I would love to. Yeah. No, I, I think this, I mean, thank you. I'll do be like, we're done. But like, um, <laughs> no, no, no. I also like, I, I'm feeling just very moved and, like I'm going to like my self-care activity today is go for a run. And I feel like um, I'm feeling of a feeling of going running and just kind of like letting this sit and whatever comes out of this, I want to help it and support it. And um, I know there's like a panel getting organized next week and there's a couple other things, but I just think um, however I can keep contributing to this as able, I would love to, and to amplify it. And maybe there is a 2.0 that's like vocabulary and, um, bringing elder perspectives and doing an intergenerational conversation, all those pieces. I mean, we can, we can do it all. So yeah. Thank you so, so much. So many ideas. Thank you so much, much, Mitra. We'll be in touch and you'll be back. Don't worry. All right. Take care. Bye. Bye.